This is the Detroit Sports Podcast Network. Today's episode of Two Bad Hombres is brought to you by The Athletic, premium coverage for passionate Detroit sports fans. Listeners of this podcast can save 30% off the first year of an annual subscription by going and visiting theathletic.com slash DSP. You heard us correct. You can subscribe to a great Detroit sports website and even save 30% off. All you got to do is go to theathletic.com slash DSP to subscribe and save. I was trying to get an idea. I want them dead presidents. I want to pull up. It's been. Get it, get flat. I got six jobs. I don't get And our guest likes to build up song. I love hearing that. We are still, still, still not tired at all on this week's episode of Two Bad Hombres. I am your host, Vito Geronimo Chirk, along to my usual sidekick and broadcast partner and fun. That is a doc from Doc and Jack, John Charles Macaroon. John, how are you doing? Vito, we got to have a conversation. Welcome to the weekend. Look. I love the fact that you represent the Michigan brand, but you're bringing in all these Michigan athletes, ex-Michigan athletes, everybody that's associated with Michigan. Look, you know we rep the Spartan House here a little bit, but my goodness. Look, if you invite somebody, no problem. But look, the next few guests you invite, got to represent a different brand, man. Come on. Well, I know the Michigan people, the finest people in the land is how I like to describe them. And one of them is Bishop Gallagher alum, University of Michigan alum, and now the owner, the founder and owner of Julius Curry Racing. That is the man himself, Julius Curry. Julius, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great, guys. Glad to be here in the studio. Well, glad to have you on. It's awesome that you're here. All kidding aside, when Vito invites guests, we love to have conversations. And so... You've been on recent podcasts talking about Julius Curry racing. What do you think of this podcasting game? Man, I love it. I think it's the way to go. Uh, it's uh, real quick. You can set up and, you know, it's real friendly, you know, family friendly and, you know, it's business friendly. And we're cost effective. So any sponsors out there, you know, companies listening right now, uh, uh, support us with your dollars. We need the dollars. And first and foremost, how has your summer been since I last saw you? You were inducted into the Bishop Gallagher Football Alumni Hall of Fame. Man, it's been going great. I uh, just got back from... Uh, uh, Eldora Speedway in Ohio. Now I'm heading out to Poconos. So we race tonight, and it's going to be great. Cool. Well, back to your alma mater. Let's start off with that. Bishop Gallagher. Now you played for a legendary head coach in George Sahady. What was it like playing for him? Man, George was a guy, he was like similar to Lloyd Carr, real real team guy. Everything was about the team. And um, if we talked about yourself in the interviews and anything like that, then he would let you know that that's probably going to be your last interview. Because if it's not about the team, then it's not about – just you, you know, it's not about just winning the game. It's about if we lost a game and everybody put it on the line, then we lost as a team. So that's what I like about George, and we did a lot of great things in high school. So you played at Michigan. You were there from 98 to 02. You were a redshirt in 98. Now, how the heck did you actually get to Ann Arbor? Well, it was kind of weird. Uh, back in 1995, uh, Lloyd Carr actually was recruiting me at the time, He before he became the head coach at the University of Michigan. And then later on, Jim Herman, he took over as the recruiting coordinator in that in that area, and I started working more with uh, Jim Herman. So I kind of already had my mind made up on, in my sophomore year going into my junior year that I wanted to go to University of Michigan. So it wasn't like a big hype thing and about, you know, uh, who's going to sign in Michigan at the end of the day and all, like, you know, at the last second. But I wanted to make my decision. I stuck with it, and then I graduated and played some ball. So I did everything I wanted to do. 
So your first year in 98 was just coming off of a sheer national championship yeah. for U of M. Yeah, we were defending national champs as a, as a redshirt freshman. So, you know, uh, before I found out I was going to redshirt it, you know, I was excited to play. But once I found out I was getting redshirted, I was happy that I wasn't wasting a year and I had a year under my belt to learn the defense. How did you get involved with football? What were your earliest memories of playing ball? Uh, earliest memories, I actually started playing football at St. Clements, St. Clements Elementary School when I was in the fourth grade. So I was on the fourth grade, in the fourth grade, playing on the fifth grade football team. So that's kind of how I got my, you know, my, my end in the sport. And it kind of wasn't a good end because when I first got involved in, in, in football, the coach told me to get off the football field because I wasn't on the team. And really? So the next week I wound up, you know, playing on the football team, you know. But it was the varsity head coach that told me to get off the football field. And later on, I wound up being one of the, you know, good players that played at St. Clements. You were meant to be on the football field. Let's yeah. just say that. And <laughs> yeah. then playing for Lloyd Carr. How yeah. was that experience, by the way, with him as your head coach at U of M? Man, it was great. Uh, Lloyd, he had he had everything it took to win. You know, he had a, a great staff with uh, Fred Jackson as the running backs coach, Stan Parrish, I mean, you know, uh, Eric Campbell, uh, Vance Bedford. We had a great staff, you know, of, of, of coaches. And then we had the number one recruiting class in the country. So we had a lot to live up to uh, at the time, especially defending the national championship and having guys like Marcus Ray come back as a leader and Tom Brady being his fourth year, even though he had to spend time, split time with Drew Henson. We needed those guys at the time. And Lloyd, you know, was the perfect coach for that situation. Who's Tom Brady? Do you know him, John? Oh, I don't know I mean, who that could be. You played with him for two seasons too, <laughs> yeah, right? Ninety eight and ninety nine. Yeah. What was he like as a teammate, by the way? Well, Tom Tom was a great guy, man. He was in what people don't remember or they might do or don't, but Tom was the comeback king back then. And the reason why he was is because most of the time he would play first in the fourth quarter. So and then Drew would play second and third. So and you know, sometimes it would switch up, Drew would start and, and Tom wouldn't. And it really wasn't like a uh, who played the best that week thing. It was a uh, who was the best for our opponent thing. And I think a lot of people outside looking in didn't see that, you know, and sometimes the media run with the stories. But it was a good opportunity, and it was a perfect thing for Michigan at the time. What was the vibe of the locker room exactly? You spoke on a little bit. Were, were there camps that developed in terms of people going, well, maybe Tom could be a little bit better quarterback for Michigan, or were there guys that were strongly in favor of Drew playing as well? What was it like in that locker room? Well, the freshman class, of course, definitely was a, was a close-knit. We were a close-knit guy, um, group of guys, um, and most of the guys I kind of helped recruit. So it was like, you know, I wanted, of course, you know, freshmen to come in and play, but I also wanted to see what Tom Brady would do as a senior, as a fourth-year senior just like if I was a fourth-year senior and I had opportunity to start and I sat behind Brian Greasy and Scott Dreisbach and now it's my turn. You know what I mean? And that's what Tom did. And um, we did have a great quarterback coming in as a freshman, but they did a good job being one and two quarterbacks. And I think that's what we needed to be, to win the Big Ten championship that year. And guys that go to U of M should know already, like right off the bat, that you're not going to play more than likely right away. There's a lot of competition. So yeah. if you don't play right away, well, it's kind of the norm at yeah. U of M, right? Yes, it is. Yeah, but when you were the number one recruiting class in the nation, we had the number one quarterback, number one receiver, number one running back, number two running back, number number. It was everybody. Yeah, everybody. Just loaded with talent, yeah, huh? Everybody's one and two. So with that being said, and then you had the defending champs coming back that were fourth year and some fifth year seniors. It was definitely a lot of tension in the locker room, but it actually made us better. You know, and, and the thing was, was what Lloyd said, was the expectation is for the position. So just because you're a senior doesn't mean you're going to start. Just because you're a freshman don't mean you're going to come in here playing, even though you're number one recruiting class in the nation. So the expectation is for the position, and we worked hard for it, and I got red-shirted. 
couple other guys got registered, which was the best thing that we could have did because we had a loaded defense and we had a lot of seniors coming back and guys that had played a lot of football. And so for me to come in as an athlete, not knowing where I really was going to fit in the scheme of the Michigan defense or offense, um, it was a great, great uh, decision that Coach Carr made. And now, John, I have to bring this up. You went to five bowl games and you yeah. won two Big Ten championships. Quite the career and time to be around Ann Arbor then, huh? Yeah, it was it was great. Um, and But we, like you said, we had a lot to live up to being with the defending national champs. That was our that was our fire, you know, and that was what we had to live up to. And, you know, back in 95 and 96, it wasn't as, you know, as how it was in 97, but those guys made a standard, and that was the standard. The standard was at least win the Big Ten Championship. If not, then let's go to the Rose Bowl and let's win, defend the national champ. So we did as best as we can do. If we didn't lose two games in the beginning, of, you know, I think we would have won the national championship that year. So, you know, we, we had a good good run, and, you know, now we can look back and say, man, look, we we'll, guess what? If we had two more plays – and that we could have changed, we would be right back at the national championship game. Fast forward to 2000 now, when Michigan uh, kind of used to beat Ohio State, because they did in 2000. Yeah. You had a mighty huge interception in the third quarter. I think you made it 31-12 to with your 50-yard interception return for touchdown. Talk about that and how you pulled that out, because I actually watched the replay of it on YouTube. You can watch everything on YouTube now, right? Yeah. Brad Nestler, I believe, was on the call, and he called. Let me get this right. He said that you read that like a comic book. Yeah. Is what he said to describe how you read that and intercepted that pass. And it looked like to me from watching it from afar way after the fact now in 2018 that you read the heck out of that yeah. to jump that route and to make that INT. Yeah, it was something that we talked about at practice. Um, one thing that I learned really at a young age with George Haiti was watch film. And so we watched a lot of film, third and eight. They ran a lot of curls. And so we were in cover for defense, and it was a, it was a four hold, which means that the safety can jump the route and the cornerback can play over him and take his spot if he lose one. So we, I told I told Todd, I'm jumping it. I said, I'm, I told him in the huddle, I'm jumping the route because they're going to run a curl. So I kind of knew what it was going to be based on their tendencies. And so with that, you know, Todd said, oh, I got you. I jumped the route. I actually jumped, almost overran the ball. Because <laughs> but you were there so quick. Yeah, it was exactly what Coach Herman said. I was like, Coach, I'm jumping the route. I'm just letting you know. Todd, be over top. And so if I if if he mess around and run a double move or a post corner or something like that, then I know I got a cornerback that got my back. So that was the kind of defense we did, you know. And, and coach gave us the flexibility on making those kind of calls. Now, how important are your instincts when it comes to reading a quarterback, trying to jump that route, trying to make that INT? As you played primarily strong safety at U of M, I know too. Yeah. Well, with that, um, Jim Herman, he, we did a lot of disguises, you know. Um, starting off as a freshman. So by the time I got there, we were we were disguised every play pretty much. And sometimes we would line up in the wrong place just to kind of throw off the offense so that we can give them a different look. And then as long as we got back to our spot where we needed to be, we were we were good. And so, you know, at that time, you know, I was a junior, and our defense were, you know, we still had a young defense, but we worked well together. And Todd and I, we played a lot of ball, a lot of, lot of, lot of ball together, and we were like, hey, this side of the field – we gonna make the decisions over here, you know, because if if if, if Ty fall, I gotta go make the play if we're in cover two or if we're in cover four or cover three. I gotta be there to help him out so that we can give ourselves a last stand chance, a last chance to to stop them. And when you were at Michigan, what did that rivalry with Ohio State mean? A team that Harbaugh hasn't beat yet, who we would love to see him beat going into year number four. What did that rivalry mean to you and your teammates back then? And also, did you guys get up more for that game too because it was OSU that you were facing? Yeah, we really did. I mean, it goes back to the history of why Ohio State-Michigan played. Like, when you think about 
you know, why that game was and the, why the Michigan Territory and Ohio, and Ohio Territory were fighting over land. And then instead of fighting, we're going to play this game. That is so important to the history of why the game is important other than just the rivalry. The simple fact that we were fighting for something that our, you know, our state had. And so with knowing that, knowing those facts, it's like, man, when we play this game, we're fighting for more than just playing football. You know, we're fighting for Michigan, you know, and it's the state of Michigan. You know, we're fighting for our little brothers in Michigan State and Lansing. <laughs> little brothers. You know, there we go, John. Did you hear that, little brothers? We're he graduated from, from MSU. Yeah, we're I fight, like that. We're fighting for all those guys that, you know, that want to win for Michigan. And, mm-hmm. you know, and that's what we're still trying to do to this day. And, you know, when I see Michigan State winning, I'm happy for them because it still helps out the Big Ten. And so those are the things that a lot of people forget about. I said, no, we, we're happy that Michigan State's winning. We're happy when Michigan State beat Ohio State. You know what I'm saying? Because that rivalry is something is is big. Both of us want to beat those. You want to see Ohio State lose no matter period. what, almost right? Yeah, period. period. Lose against anybody, please just lose. <laughs> Illinois. <laughs> what was it like for you going to Buckeye Nation to be there in Columbus, dealing with those home fans of Ohio State? Like how rude and rowdy were they at times with you guys coming Man, in as Michigan players? It definitely was the one of the worst places and the toughest places we ever played. Um, I mean, all the way from the grandparents flicking off, really? the kids, the kids Everybody, flicking huh? off, the grandma's moon. And I'm like, man, I've never seen a grandma, really? grandma doing that. But it was stuff like that that, you know, that inspired us to say, you know, we're going to kick them right in their ass. And, you know, that's what we that's what we did. I mean, we lost two games to Ohio State while, while I was in Michigan. But, you know, I won. I didn't play in one of the games. Well, actually, two of the games I didn't play in. So I never lost to them. There you know you what I'm saying? So yeah. to me, in my you know deep down inside, if I was able to be on the field that day, I felt like I would have made a difference, and then we could have possibly won that game. So the way I'll ask it is, what's better, not losing to Ohio State or actually winning? Because I know there's a lot of pressure. So is it something where it's a relief when you win, or is it something where the losses hurt a lot more than the wins? Yeah. What, what's it like, and how would you describe it? The losses definitely hurt a lot more. Because, you know, when you, you know, when you with Lloyd and, and our defensive coordinators and our guys, we, we worked hard to get to that game. You know, we worked hard in preseason talking about Ohio State. We worked hard in the summertime talking about beat Ohio State. And then to get to the last Big Ten championship, Big Ten game of the season and, and guys are not focused on the game. You know, they may be focused on playing or focused on what the media said or focused on just not, not being focused that day or that play. You know, and that's that's what it comes down to. One or two plays, you lose the game. Uh, one play, I made the pick, took it home, and it put us in a situation where they got to score two touchdowns to catch up. You know what I mean? And so I think that, you know, it's all numbers, points, and execution, and we did our job. What do you remember the most about your time at Michigan? Uh, the most I remember, honestly, man, is just being a part of a team. You know, uh, once you leave college and, and Bo was exactly right, you play for a contract. You know, you plan for, you know, not team. You're not playing for a team. You may be on a team. Like, even in the NFL, it wasn't the same as playing at Michigan. You know, it just wasn't. You know, I played on Chicago. I played on Detroit. I played for the Packers. And it just wasn't Michigan. You know what I'm saying? But it was still football. You know, I was playing for a check. I was playing for the guys to be better. But because I went to Michigan, I think it. I was more of a team guy in an environment where it was about contracts and who got the most money and who got the most brand and who who's promoting, you know, the marketing team, who they're promoting that week. Because I was a practice squad guy for when I was in Detroit and in Green Bay. And in Chicago, I got traded before after doing the preseason. So it wasn't like I had, you know, a, a big loyalty to the Bears. But, you know, at that time, it was like to play for three NFC teams, 
it's kind of hard to be loyal, you know what I mean, to the brand if you're getting traded. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. at Michigan, it wasn't a get trade thing. It was like if you transfer, you're not Michigan no more. You know what I mean? It was but, just at one team, so there's yeah. a big difference in loyalty to Michigan yeah. and then to an NFL yeah. squad when you know you might get dealt or you're going to leave via free agency because you can't. Exactly. And you could have transferred, yeah. but leaving via free agency is different than transferring too because yeah. you're playing for a contract. You're playing for a contract, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so that's the difference between college and college ball is like the last time where you actually can love the game for, you know, for the team, you know. Mm-hmm. And then when you get to the pros, a lot of the, you know, veteran guys, they don't they don't think that way. They think, okay, I'm not showing up to camp because I didn't get paid yet. Or, you know, I'm waiting for the signing bonus because I really need it and I ain't showing up until they pay me. So it was a little bit different, you know, once I got to the pros to see, like, oh, it is about business. You know, they definitely have a right to not show up because they want to get paid. They want to get their check. But for the guys that are, that are at camp that make the team are just camp bodies. So a lot of those camp bodies are just there. Until these guys come back, and it's not really a fair opportunity, but it's business. Those guys are there to get beat up. They're good. Really, yeah. take all the hits and yeah. training camp, the preseason yeah. maybe as well before and the veterans get yeah. back. And they're at home, you know. Yeah. But in Michigan, it's like we walk on. You can walk on and wind up becoming the captain of the team, like Eric Mays, you know, who was the nat- was the captain for the national championship year. So those things don't happen in the pros that often. You know, it happens. You know, the Tom Brady story, yeah. But, you know, Tom was a great quarterback in college. You know? Anyways, he had anyway, talent. Yeah, he, as much as he was unheralded, right, going on the sixth round. Yeah, but he, he was one of the best quarterbacks in college football. So can't nobody say that, you know what I mean, at all. Steve Bellasari can't say that, you know what I mean. And, you know, nobody can say that about Tom, even in college. So you played three NFL regular season games for the yeah. Lions in 03. Now, how mm-hmm. much did the veterans take you in? Um. Well, it was kind of different, one, because I'm from Detroit. So when I got to the Lions, it was like, oh, he's from Detroit. He went to Michigan. So a lot of guys really kind of took me, you know, in like, yeah, he 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 can play. He just got hurt in college, which is what happened. I had I missed 12 games in two years. You know, so my fourth year I got, you know, hurt, tore my uh, rotator cuff, posterior, interior, exterior, deltoid muscle, and then I had nerve damage. And then on um, my senior, fifth year, senior year, I tore my MCL. So to be able to make it to the pros was something that, you know, I was like, I'm glad that I can make it, but I know my career won't be last because I was already labeled injury prone. So once you get labeled injury prone, you start looking at what you're going to do with your degree. And so, you know, me having a sports management degree, I'm using it now. So you thought about forming Julius Curry Racing. Yeah, I was. Pretty quickly after yeah, that experience well, with the Lions. Like, when did you start thinking about forming that racing team as you did, which was in 05, I read as well? well yeah, sophomore year in college, uh, we were taking sports, I was taking some sports business classes and. You know, uh, I think my professor, yeah, my professor was Bruce Mate at the time. And and we were talking and and he was really into racing. And I didn't know Bruce loved racing like that, but he was in racing before he got into football and, you know, doing stuff at the University of Michigan. And I always wanted to be a race car driver. So it was like, damn, I can't race cars. You know, I got to go play football at Michigan. I got to focus on that. And and I was racing cars at 15, 16 years old in the neighborhood. So, you know, at night at 2 o'clock in the morning with my dad. So. (laughs) It was like my little, you know, getaway thing that I always wanted to do. And we didn't have those opportunities to be involved in motorsports in Detroit, you know. And so now that I can, you know, I, I'm involved, I can do that and offer those kind of you know, opportunities in Detroit. But that's when I started as a sophomore in college. And by the time I graduated, we were doing stuff for NASCAR, doing uh, research on diversity and inclusion and stuff back then. So it was a perfect fit, to, you know, that the university created the Department of Kinesiology and the Sports Management so that I can be in the position I am now, which is the same thing Lloyd taught me. The team, 
and now use your degree. So it was it was like the perfect one-two punch. And I read that you had a past in racing dating way back to when you were like a young boy and you watched your dad and uncle race yeah. and build cars too, yeah. right? Talk about that a little bit and how that really made you into a race fan too. Yeah, well, my uncle, uh, my uncle Tim actually was the president, was a, was a personal driver and assistant to President Lyndon Johnson back in the 60s and 67. And, you know, how he got in that position was he was, a, you know, he raced cars. He was drag racing on Mile Road and out of drive. And go with flat. He would go to the racetrack out in Milan and and race cars with those guys. And he never had enough money and funding to to take it to the level that Penske took it to. But they were racing against each other back then, you know, before they were even twenty one years old. And so when I when I grew up listening to those stories, and I'm like, man, y'all would crash cars and get chased by the cops and all that stuff. And it was like, man, for real, you could do that, <laughs> you know. So it was it was something I always wanted to do. Now I have the opportunity. So with Julius Career Racing, you got into the NASCAR Craftsman Truck Series, yep. which is now the Camping World Truck Series. Uh, and you were the first African-American team to have sole minority ownership as well? Yes. Talk about that and what that means to you as well to uh, be known for that. Well, honestly, it, it was one of those kind of things where um, in, in sports, there is need for diversity. But um, not diversity and employees sometimes. I'm more talking about diversity and ownership because when you get – uh, more minorities having ownership in the sport, then it brings on another demographic of people that that target market necessarily wasn't for in the beginning. And so now, uh, as you can see, if you look at some of the footage and look at the races, the stands aren't that, you know, packed right now. And so we're looking at if we can bring more people and more minority groups into that arena, I think it'll be a great, great thing for the sport. When you're used to having, you know, a hundred thousand people in the stadium and you only got 40 or 25. I mean, then the sports started to look at, well, how do we make this better so that we can really reach the people that are here in America, which are the American people. And no matter what you are before American, you're American. And I Mm -hmm. think it's an, it's the American sport. So tell people about Julius Curry racing for those that don't know. Well, Julius Curry racing is a is a race team right now we're predominantly focusing on nascar world camping truck series but we are going to get into some arca next year and maybe even some xfinity cup races and maybe even even some monster energy cup races next year but right now we're focusing on trucks because you know what is what is life without a pickup truck you know you can't pull a hauler you can't cut grass you can't do anything so if you're a young guy that's the first thing that i tell people they need to get if you're a man you need to get you a pickup truck well, no, I, I have to go get something else. Got I have to go to. get a pickup truck for myself, huh? And if you live in Detroit, you need a pickup truck for the snow. You know? As well, they get through a lot of bad weather, <laughs> weather, like left and right throughout the winter, too. Yeah, and so, but, you know, that was my first opportunity, and I love being in trucks. Like, you know, trucks are a really good um, platform to promote and market, and I just love trucks. I've always been a, a truck guy my whole life. So how can we increase the number of African-Americans driving race cars? And what is Julius Curry Racing doing to accomplish that as well? Well, one thing I'm doing, like I'm talking to a couple of drivers. I got my current driver is uh, Josh Rayom. Josh Rayom is from Canada, but grew up in California um, at a certain age. But from for 13 years, he actually lived in Nigeria, which is a little bit different um, uh, than most, most guys that are in NASCAR. So he has a definitely a different outlook on 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 uh, diversity and you know in life because his parents adopted an african nigerian i mean a nigerian kid and he's racing in canada right now he's uh, 16 years old he's a great race car driver and i like the fact that you know it is changing um what i am doing now uh starting next year we're going to do driver development so i want to get into more in the arca then that's more of a driver development series so that we can get 
drivers, you know, develop, but not just the African-American market, but the all the minority markets. I mean, it can be Asian, Chaldean, it can be whatever you whatever you are. If you're American, it's for you. Now, I'm always looking for content for Vito. Is there an opportunity maybe at a race for practice, maybe in one of the earlier sessions, that Vito can get one of those trucks and maybe take a lap or two? Oh, yeah, for oh, sure. How would I look in that? Would I look really good? Could I hope Vito... I would look good. That's what I'm really worried about, <laughs> yeah. Julius. So. Hey, we got to get a seat custom made for you. <laughs> right? We can get it custom made, maybe. Maybe there's something there for me because as well. I could definitely see Vito, you know, doing a video with maybe a little camera, one, oh, one man, single camera. Rocking out, get some video content that way for the DSP man. network. Oh, hey. yeah. How fast do the trucks get on these races? Uh, depends, man. Anywhere from 180 to 200 miles an hour. Um, so it depends on if it's a speedway <laughs> or a short track. And the bigger the track, the more speed. You, you know, you get behind the wheel. Uh, but I actually went to racing school back in 2012 uh, with uh, Fast Track Racing School with Andy Hillenberg. When Andy Hillenberg owned a racetrack out in, in, in um, North Carolina in, in Rockingham Speedway. And so I loved it. You know, I went there. I went to every school that he had. I went to advanced uh, racing school. And I really did it because, you know, just me being an athlete, I wanted to understand what a driver's feeling like in the car. So if the driver says it's a little loose, uh, you know, it's a little tight, I want to be able to say, well, what does that mean? You know, I got tired of saying, well, what, what does tight mean? Well, what does loose mean? Uh-huh. All this uh, terminology. Yeah, well, you know, I didn't hit marbles. I'm like, what the hell are marbles? You know what I mean? <laughs> so those are the things uh-huh. I, w- I was hearing. But I didn't quite understand. And so uh, now that, you know, I understand the terminology, I can understand what the driver's talking about so that I can be more effective for the team. And now that you've had that vantage point up close and personal, uh, what would you say to people that say that these NASCAR drivers aren't athletes? Because now you hear that a lot. And I'll admit to you, I'll admit to you right now, I'm an honest guy. I've thought that at times myself. What would you like to tell to me and to others that really view NASCAR drivers as non-athletes? Yeah, it, it's definitely a sport where these drivers are 100% athletes, if not, you know, more more than when, you know, football players work out. We work out, but race car drivers, they they have to be in shape. I mean, to sit in there for 200 laps and turn left, we're going up and down on a 45-degree angle at 180 miles an hour, I mean, it's unreal. I've When I went to racing school and I had a two-day um, fast track, I had a fast track, um, in the morning, I did 35 laps. In the afternoon, I did another 35 laps. And just in that time frame, I lost like 10 pounds. Wow. You know what I mean? You can lose that much weight. Yeah. Because of how fast you're driving then too, right? Well, that and it's hot. Like, there is no air conditioning. Oh, <laughs> so God. So, I sit in that car, and my driver at the last, and what race was that, he actually had to go to the, you know, meet with the doctors the, you know, after the racetrack because he was so dehydrated. And he almost passed his... Until like heat exhaustion, yeah. right? And with those suits... Those suits they put on too. Yeah, they're fire suits, but the suit that uh they don't have, we don't have air conditioning in our truck. So that's wow. one thing that you know, one thing during the summer. Good luck to you, then, <laughs> yeah. huh? Yeah, and you know, and then we we can get you know, uh, we have a helmet where they push the air through there and it goes and it keeps his head cool. But we have to, you know, we have to get some more air conditioning in there. <laughs> now people talk about too. Where do you go and pee? What do you have to go to the bathroom? You know, I mean, there's been like there's a long, you know, uh, history of people talking about that and trying to figure out for non race car fans or, you know, drivers like all of us. I mean, what is it? What do you know, you know about what's that? weird. Most guys like I had to use the bathroom when I was doing my, my laps and you might have to use the bathroom, but you can't. You just can't. You can't. <laughs> you can't. <laughs> just my, not going to come out. My driver, no matter how like, bad you got to go. I just I, I got to pee, but I can't pee, you know, and it's one of those kind of things where you can't pee. Uh, I'm sure there are some guys that may have 
As they're driving, they let it loose, I guess. But most drivers say they can't use the bathroom. Now, Julius, I'm curious about the business model, obviously owning a racing team. Um, How was it for you early on, and how is it as a business model in terms of the cost early on and in terms of actually running a racing team as a business? Well, the the, the cost of the the business model is is definitely um, I'm a for-profit race team. Uh, the thing that that we're what we're trying to do is focus on partnering with nonprofits and partnering with brands to do more B two B stuff. Uh, most companies and race teams are trying to get sponsorship dollars, but I'm more looking at partnerships. Um, so it's a little bit different than you know the traditional team that are just going out there like we're going to just pay you to put the logo on the car. I'm more looking at how can we sell more products. You know, if you got three different products in your company, and I'm coming there and I want to say how can I help boost the sales of these products? How can we, you know, do more B2B stuff? And that's kind of where, where I am with Julius Curry Racing. We want to we wanna build that up so that we can take the small business and turn them into big business. So speaking of boosting, how about boosting viewership for NASCAR as a whole? How can NASCAR get more people to watch its races on a race-to-race basis? Uh, one thing I feel that we can do is more, if we can talk about diversity a little bit more, and we can show fans that, and um, that there are more there there is more diversity, so that people that are not traditionally in the sport can come out and say, you know what, I do got something to, to follow. Uh, I think that they need to promote pit crew members more. You know, that's an untapped market. They tried a years back, a few years back, where they were doing pit crew challenges and all that stuff. And I really loved what they when they were doing that. But I think it needed to come back around, come back around, and start really promoting the pit crew, and then more and have the drivers more in the community. Um, most team, most drivers, they go back to Charlotte after the race. They go back to where their shop is after the race. But I think, you know, the day before the drivers need to do, put more stuff in the communities and more time in the communities that we, that we race in. And that's something that, you know, I'm going to talk to my driver more about, like, let's come a day before, let's spend a little bit more time in the communities that we're racing in so that we can have a bigger fan base that's just like our team. Yeah, that'll build up your following, right, with the community efforts, initiatives. If you go in, you interact with those that need the help, right, and you're at different events leading up Mm -hmm. to the race, too, and maybe after it as well, increases your following and enhances your brand recognition, right? and that's what I've been doing. I've been doing it. I've been going, like, when I went to Dover, I went and met with the Economic Development Department, and I went there to see, well, what are you guys doing in the community and how can I get involved? Um, Same thing, I'm going to the Poconos. Um and going there and meet with the economic development people there as well so that I can see, well, what is your plan and how can my race team be more involved? So speaking of having a following, how about somebody that really does, that really maybe was never a great NASCAR driver, Danica Patrick, who just hosted the ESPYs. How good of a NASCAR driver do you think she really was? Honestly, um, anybody that get on that, on that, in that car is, is, is the real deal. Some guys don't like the fact that she was there, but I love the fact that she was there because it shows the diversity in sport. And if a woman can beat one guy on the track, then that shows that she can that she has the staying power. That shows that she's a real she's the real deal. Um, now, whether she won a lot of races or not, I mean, the record speaks for itself. But I think that she was a great thing for the sport because she gave other women the opportunity, like Jessica jo- uh, Jennifer Joe Cop. She's a race car driver in truck series. She raced the number ten. And if it was maybe not been for Danica, you know, inspiring other women to get into sport, I think that, you know, she may not be there, you know, but they had, we had the Deborah Renshaws back in the day, you know, when she raced the 08 and the eight truck before I got the truck, you know, back in 2006. So, you know, those are the things that I really admire about, 
you know, minorities and diversity in the sport because, you know, it's not just a guy thing. You know, there are women that like the sport. There are women that will get out there and turn laps and crash you on turn four or lose it on turn four. And you'd be like, this stupid chick right here. But, no, she's really not stupid. She needed to change her tires. She got a little loose because her air pressure was a little bit too high or too low. So those are the kind of things that, you know, I think that if, if drivers focus on driving instead of focus on women not being in the sport, I think it'll be it'll continue to, to grow and be a sport, an American sport, which is what it is. Well, if you're good, you're good. You know what? Then you can do it, right? And it's yeah. all about diversity too. And she was a trendsetter. Mm-hmm. Now I don't know if she's funny though. Well, and she the, hosted the ESPYS. I don't yeah. know if she was funny. Well, but, the other yeah. thing too is that she was the only female out there. So mm-hmm. I mean, how many guys on the track are going to say, "All right, let's go draft together"? You know what I mean? Let's let's win together. And so I don't think she really had the support system on the track that would help her be more in the front. I mean, you know, she had the dollars behind her. But even if you had the dollars, don't mean you ain't going to get blocked. But the people racing against yeah, you really aren't going to be supporting you, though, well, huh? Yeah, on the track, you're trying to win. So you're going to block. You're going to do things like that. You know, if you got, you know, Dale in the front, you got Jimmy in the front, you got, you know, Matt Kinsley's in the front, you got all these guys at the front that's trying to win, and they're working on a They got four guys out there that, you know, they're working together to, to win the race for their manufacturer. You know what I mean? So when you're talking about you got eight other teams out there that got four, four, four cars. I mean, and it's just Danica and her crew, but, you know. Yeah, she didn't have many allies, she probably. Ain't really Not many allies. <laughs> Adversaries, yeah. right? But, but to me, she was a great driver. I don't care. Like, if you can survive all those crashes and, and come out looking like that, Aaron Aaron Rodgers love her. And I love I, I Hey, Aaron's my man. So. Yeah, if he can love her, we all can love her, huh? <laughs> we all can love well, her. But she had a lot of opponents. Yeah. She really did. Mm-hmm. I want to follow up with one more thing from your 2003 year with the Detroit Lions. What was it like playing for Mooch? What was your impression of him and especially Coach Schottenheimer on the defensive side? Oh, man, Mariucci was a great coach, man. When I say we might have not won a lot of games, but Mariucci was the guy that we needed for Detroit at the time. Um he he. When we lost, he made sure he came in there. He talked to us like men, you know. And that was his thing. Like we're men, you know. And I'm like, of course. And a lot of coaches coming there screaming, yelling, and going crazy. But Mooch talked to us with a lot of respect and was like, and I commend you guys for being here. We lost, I think, six games by a total of 13 points. So that's not like we got our ass kicked. Mm-hmm. You know, we got, we were out there battling. We had the number two defense in the in the NFL at the time. You know what I mean? So to, we weren't. We didn't suck. We just didn't win the close games. So Danica had adversaries, right? I mean, yeah. Mooch did. Uh, Jim Harbaugh <laughs> exactly. does have yeah. his adversaries as well, a lot mm-hmm. more than I think allies right now. And yeah. transitioning to that a little bit, how invested are you in Michigan football still? Man, I'm I'm very involved um, when it comes to community. Um, last year, I did a youth impact program last summer to help out with the with the football program uh, because it starts when they're kids. You know, when the guys are eight, nine, ten, eleven, that's when you find out who's going to be the the leader, the leader, in twenty, in ten years, and in twenty years. You know, that's the type of recruiting that 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 needs to be done. And and they took seventy eight kids from the inner cities, disadvantaged kids, and they had partnered with the military to come in there and get these and talk to these kids. I was one of those kids when I was growing up. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. to me, to get those kids that are down and, you know, that are counted out, that may not get the opportunity, you know, before I went to Cal, you know, when I was, I was in Catholic school, but I still lived in the hood. So that's disadvantage, you know, all day long. You go to school, wear a uniform, go home, dealing with the streets. You know what I mean? So it was different, it obviously. Was different, you go from Catholic you know? school to the streets like that, it, right? Daily, you know. So to me, you know, those kids remind me of me. So that's where I'm giving back to that. And, a Valiant brand actually sponsored the kids. 
Uh, John Wangler did, and that was great. And Jack Harbaugh came out and supported. And um, it was great. We did a pit crew challenge at the University of Michigan football stadium, and the kids loved it. And they were surprised because they didn't know they were going to do racing that day. Uh-huh. So academic, they did academics during the daytime, and then they did um, sports in the afternoon. So it was a great experience. I like Valiant a little bit. No reason why, really. <laughs> uh, went to Catholic grade school, by the way, myself, St. Thecla. Yeah. And then I went to DLSL High School. Sweet. So I don't know if you knew about that. <laughs> no, so I didn't know that. a lot of Catholic <laughs> years of schooling for yeah. me and for you. Yeah. And Harbaugh, how about him as a leader and leading the program to the promised land? Is Jim Harbaugh that man that can do that after a disappointing 8 and 5 season, losing in the Outback Bowl as well to South Carolina? I, st- I think so. I mean, you got you go back to 96. What what did Lloyd do? You know, he wasn't a, a, a 10-2 team at, in 1996, but the, in 1997, they went, un, you know, went undefeated. So, you know, I think this year uh, Jim Harbaugh can win some games, and I think, you know, they can definitely win the Big Ten Championship, and if they can get past the Big Ten Championship, then they can get a national championship opportunity. Uh, we had a young team. You know, the 97 team was actually a young team. Uh, I was there at the game when Ohio Michigan played Ohio State. I didn't get to make the – the Rose Bowl game, but they weren't they weren't the oldest team. They were a young team still, and they won. So my thing is, I believe that Harbaugh, what he's doing now, bringing in quarterback from Ole Miss, and he's actually got an opportunity to come in and play this year. I think that we got some, we got a team to be reckoned with, and I think we can win the Big Ten championship first, and then we win the Big Ten championship. Now we go to the Rose Bowl or we go to the national championship game. I think he is the coach that can make it happen. I think our fans and our team need to continue to support him because it takes time. You know, it takes time to win. And so I think Harbaugh's the guy. But going into year number four, he hasn't beaten Ohio State. He beat MSU, Johns, Michigan State Spartans, on a down year for MSU. I mean, what do you say about Harbaugh when you bring up those kind of facts, too, which are relevant to the masses? I mean, at the end of the day, the players got to make the plays. You know, like the coach can put me in position to make the play. And like I did at Michigan and the Ohio State game, I got to make that play. Harbaugh can put the best players and make a play, but if they don't make a play, he can't coach making plays. You know what I'm saying? They got to make those plays on game day. But he can coach, and he's been doing a great job throughout the week to put those guys in the best position. Now set the scene for us. What's it like? You're a young player. You get on the field, and you're playing at the big house, the masses. You're about to walk out. You're going to hit that big block and run out there, play in front of your friends, family, and the pressure of winning playing at Michigan. What's it like in terms of the pregame and the locker room and then finally walking out your first couple times to play at the big house? Well, it's a little different now because they got more uh, interactive things that they do with the fans and, you know, they, they Instagram and Twitter and all that stuff. We didn't really have all that. You know, uh-huh. we, were, we were so focused on winning. We had our pregame meal. We did our prayer. We took the bus ride down to the stadium. Everybody put their headphones on. And back in then, I was listening to, like, Pastor Troy. You know, we ready. And, you know, we going to war. Like, it wasn't no, like, B2K, you know, or it wasn't no, <laughs> you know, it wasn't those, you know. No Justin Bieber or anything no, like that? I, mean, no, I kind of no, like Justin Bieber. Not, I mean, you, know, but... you know, it wasn't all that, you know. Guys, did you even have cell phones back then? Yeah, we did. We had Nextel Chirps when they first came out. <laughs> <laughs> but, we, you know, we, we, did, we focused straight up on football. We didn't care about media. We didn't do interviews, many interviews before the game. This is familiar? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Put you back in that mindset. That's, Pastor Troy, we ready. That's exactly that's exactly what we would listen to before the game, especially against Ohio State. This was like your 
yeah. your build-up music, yeah. yeah. Kato June, I talked to him yesterday. He said, man, that took me. they take me to a dark place when we were playing, man, because we had to get into that mode where we were going to war. It wasn't no football. It was like, I'm knocking your head off. We hurting guys in the game because that's what you do if you play defense. If you ain't hurting nobody, you ain't winning. You know, and we – and. Yeah. Get you going. Yeah, Get you right. That's that just wrapped up, yeah. just like back in the day at U of M, huh? Man, it, it definitely brings back memories. And we fought. It was a it was a war zone out there. It wasn't no plan. So these young guys now playing at U of M don't have Nextels anymore. I mean, they have smartphones now. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, how do you deal with all the noise, like with social media? That social media brings too for these kids that are on their phones constantly. We all are. Yeah. How would you tell them? How would you advise them to deal with all the noise? I would say pregame, you got to shut it down. You know, you know, maybe you put that fifteen minutes of you're going to say, "Hey guys, wish me luck" or something like that. But once you get to the to the game, it's all about the game. It's about understanding what you got to do. It's about understanding what Jim Harbaugh talked about, the down the distances, the tendencies. If you're on defense, if you're on offense, it's about executing the play. It's about not going on jumping off sides. It's about not dropping the ball, not fumbling. So guys got to really focus on that. And what Lloyd Carr really did that I loved about him was he would always tell us to envision making the play, envision making the play on third and eight, envision making the play on first and ten, and you got to, you know, you got a deep route with the receiver. Imagine, you know, everything that you want to do. That's what you have to do. You have to imagine it. But if you're focusing on all this other crap and you're not imagining yourself making plays, then that's what you're going to focus on. Now, who's the go-to artist for you now, musical artist, that you love listening to that's more maybe modern day, somebody that I would know. No offense to Pastor Troy, but I, I didn't know him. I mean, that's just me. You I'll know, admit it. Oh, man. Right now, I'm a, it's, it's a group. It's not even like, you know, it's Jeezy, T.I., you know, those guys are the guys I listen to, you know, and in Detroit, if it's some Detroit music, I listen to some, you know, to Cheddar Boy Malik or some T Grizzly, you know, to get me hyped up or some um uh, How about Eminem? Yeah, Eminem too, but you okay. know, I'm I'm more I'm I'm an East Side guy, so you know, I never I don't really know him like that. But it would uh-huh. be cool to be like, What's up, M, you know, and, and build a relationship with him. But, you know, I know I know the East Side guys and you know, Tough Tone, and, you know, those are the kind of guys. Before the game, yeah, I'm listening to Tough Tone. You know, oh, boy, I'm listening to, like, something that's going to get me hype. But during the end, back when I was playing, he really wasn't, you know. Big back then. Yeah. Yeah. Like, at that time. And to hype you up. Yeah. You like something else to hype you up anyways. Yeah. Everybody has their preference, and yeah. for you, I mean, I, I love, nothing to do the job. I love Eminem. I mean, the, one of the best artists in the hip-hop period uh, when he did the Ether. I mean, not Ether, when he did the uh, the track with, with Jay-Z. And I was like, "Wow, Detroit!" You know what I'm saying? That was he, good. He 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 was one of he's one of the best. Period. Like, and I don't think nobody can 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 say he's not. You know, and I love Eminem. I do, but you and know. didn't they tour together? Then they did a dual contract. Yeah. They did America Parks. I mean, Jay Z yeah. and Eminem. That collaboration was huge. That was big. I mean, Eminem is the biggest artist coming out of the state of Michigan. You know what I mean? And you know, back in the days. He's, you know, I, I seen proof back in the days a lot. I seen a lot of these guys that are that are big artists now, and when they were battle rapping, you know uh-huh. what I mean. And I, I know him for being a battle rapper. You know what I mean, not like a hype hype rapper. You know what I mean. So back then it was like, 
M the kid, he had you on one to give him the microphone. You know, it was one of those. You're gonna get beat too, head to head, like those underground uh, yeah, rap battles, that, right? You weren't gonna beat yeah, Eminem, so you started I, off small. Yeah, and it's like legit. You respect that more, right? When you hear that kind of stuff yeah, too, yeah, because it was to me, it's about lyrics. And nowadays, it's not about lyrics. It's like mumble rap, which is cool. Still, I love amigos. I love yeah. Those you can guys. bounce to it, but, yeah, but is there I, meaning behind it? And yeah, I want to, I want to hear a story. I uh-huh. want lyrics, but. I ain't gonna lie, them get hype songs get you hype, and I love that part too. So you know, music is is like art. So you have different artists doing different things, and I respect everybody's craft. But there's certain things I like more than others. Now, how about Kendrick Lamar? I got to bring him up. Uh, I just went to a concert for him at DT. I love the guy, and honestly, I know it's controversial here living in you know Metro Detroit, yeah. but I would take him over Eminem. Sorry, but that's just me. Uh, I like Kendrick a lot. I'm gonna say this: they 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 great artists. Like Kendrick, definitely bringing the truth. He talk about a lot of controversial things, and I think like him and him and Eminem on the same track is something I want to see. You know what I mean? And and them collaborating on some things and seeing how him think about what Kendrick thinking. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? To me, those are the kind of things. If I was a rapper and I was in the industry like that, that I would be trying to really make happen because those Eminem can change the, the way a lot of things are are done in the industry. And Kendrick Lamar definitely is the leader to change a lot of things in the industry. I'll leave you with this. How about the national anthem policy in the NFL? What is your stance on that and the commissioner, the president of the U.S. of A., President Trump, coming out and saying these guys should be standing up and shouldn't be kneeling or you know putting their well, fist up in the air in protest of the anthem, which is really, I know, a protest of police brutality. Yeah, it means more. It's not protesting yeah, the flag. Yeah. But what, what is your stance on well, that, Julius? That's exactly what, what I'm saying, what everybody's saying. If I'm a former player. Uh, we didn't have it. We didn't do any protesting at the time. You know, we were dealing with the World Trade Center. You know, so uh-huh. we were trying to we were trying to really be bring make America great then. You know what I mean? So what I think about it is, I mean, rules are rules, right? But if you're going to stand up for something, it's the perfect time to stand up. You know what I mean? Or kneel, right? Because kneeling is standing up for the rights of people in the community, which is the same thing I'm talking about. I go to the community, see what's going on. If I see there's some issues, then of course I'm going to make a statement. Of course I'm going to do something. Uh, publicly to say this is wrong and this shouldn't be happening. You know what I mean? So if anybody can get mad about that, of course it's going to be the owners because it affects ticket sales, it affects this, it affects that, but that's exactly what they want to do. They want to show you that our voice means something, you know, mm-hmm. and if you're not going to go out there and help support the inner cities where Julius Curry came from, like I came from the hood. So if you don't care about those people, then I got a problem. You know what I mean? But at the same time, if I get fined for it, then let me get fined and leave me alone. You know what I mean? Like I did, I'm getting fined. The fans aren't getting fined. The fans are still getting a good game of football. So imagine the amount of uh, uh, tense, the how intense the game is going to be because they have something they're playing for now. Not you get what I'm saying? Yep. Mm-hmm. So they're playing for the right to be able to protest. That's actually making the game better when you got guys playing better instead of thinking about, oh, my girlfriend is mad or well, playing you know, more than just for the paycheck yeah, at the end of the day, right? Know, or for the not, women they can exactly. get, right? You're not, you're playing because you have an opportunity to play, and I appreciate being here, but I also don't appreciate if you guys aren't going to help us in the community, and I think that's what they are talking about. Now, Julius, I want to take you back down memory lane, back to 1999. Michigan is ranked number three, got a seven-game winning streak, and they head to Spartan Stadium October 9th. And uh, you're playing up against a team led by Nick Saban with Plaxico Burris, and that game was awesome. Unfortunately, Michigan fell to Michigan State 34-31. I wonder why you brought that up, John. I just happen to remember that now, looking back on the internet. Good job bringing that up, John. Tell us about... 
playing a team coached by Nick Saban, and what was it like in that contest? Well, in that game, I actually I didn't play a lot. I was mm-hmm. more of a special teams guy for mm-hmm. that game, but it was tough, man. That 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 loss was a tough. I believe it was at Michigan State. Yep, and Michigan was undefeated at the yeah, time. Yeah, our defense, man. We had a great defense. In goal play. Mm-hmm. I mean, he 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 got us that far by himself. Uh, he played a great game on defense. Tom went 30 of 41, 285 yards, two touchdowns. um, Yeah, I mean, it was a great game. But at the end of the day, the team who make the most plays and screw up the less win the game. We had a few MAs, which cost us the game. You know, offense, you know, they did the best they could do. Defense didn't perform all the way. Like, one guy can't can't win the game. You know, we didn't play as a a defense that we – should have played that game. And John, you had to rub some salt into the wound for yeah, this guy and like twist a knife for a little yeah, bit. I got on his way out the door. Just, really, got to bring that up. I just wanted yeah. to go down memory lane. Oh my yeah, yeah, because Sparty won that but, game. Yeah, but I also I was remember. there. I was. I was. Oh, you were actually there. You were a student still. I was okay. a student from uh, '97 to 2001. So, okay. but I do remember the next year when we played them and they only had a field goal. Yeah, Good. I, was, yeah. I love it. You and you know, beat them obviously that year. Yeah, I like you bringing that up. You should bring that like 28-3 or something. Yeah, blow out John something like that. Be honest, Julius. You like hearing that, Joe? The one and only game I went to watch Michigan play at the Big House was that game. Yeah, was the, was the game where Bobby Williams took him in and got a field goal. That was yeah, it. That and was I sat there it. on those bleachers and I was like, man, this place is this this ain't comfortable. No, not at <laughs> all. We, we tailgated, but yeah. man, they put a hurt into him. I was at that game too. Yeah, you know, I knocked T.J. Duckett out the game. You know, <laughs> you know stuff like that. You yeah, know. I bet you always remember that too, <laughs> you know, huh? I love four, it. Fourth and three, you know, yep. quarterback. You know, you know, mm-hmm. they couldn't score on a ten yard line, but but you know, that's football. Ball, right? Can you know? happen. One game, but now bringing up those <laughs> memories kind of helps you relive the memories, obviously. But you're kind of bringing up the competitive juices inside yeah. of you too when you hear that stuff from John. Of it course. makes you want to go out there and defend yeah. your right as a football player back when you were playing yeah. and, and beat up Sparty probably again, Man, right? Hey, I called David Terrell again. David punched Sparty in the stomach when he scored a touchdown. <laughs> <laughs> That's great to see. Like, you can't forget me. that, man. <laughs> I bet you do. Now, how intense, when you compare the two rivalries and how intense they are, Ohio State and then MSU, mm. how would you compare and contrast it to in terms of intensity with those two programs? You know what? It, it's, it's very close. I can't say that because Michigan State, those guys, I mean, I don't care if they lost to Iowa. I don't care if they lost to Penn State. When they play us – they coming to win. They want bragging rights when they go out in the in community, when they go to restaurants, bars, you know, just even with their kids when they get older. Like, you know what? We beat Michigan, you know, and, and that's something that, you know, even though it's the Ohio State is definitely one of the biggest rivalry games, but it's still the in-house and the in-state rivalry. That's something that, you know, is 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 tough and very intense. Yeah, I mean, it still means a lot, no yeah. matter how you slice. I know the OSU rivalry is right up there, but uh, in-state, you're going to hear about it, too, if you lose to MSU yeah. and Sparty. They'll take the it, chance to, I yeah, mean, to get at you, right, and let you hear years, about it. Man, just dealing with, the, dealing with the people who went to state, like whether they played basketball or water polo. I'm like, dude, you can't even say nothing. Like, you, <laughs> you, you, you was on the swim team. Like, did y'all win the Big Ten Championship? You know, I, I try to, you know, get more in-depth in what sport that the person talking trash And now you like, know, and you can fire yeah. right back at them, which I bet you like, too. <laughs> yeah, we beat y'all in softball. Though. Yeah, <laughs> we got that on y'all, right? Please, remember that. Now yeah, we got you in softball. It, it definitely make you understand, you know, look at other sports and say, at least we won in basketball. What y'all doing basketball? Right? How about the run and that U of M made, right? Yeah. In the Final Four, the, the championship yeah. game? I mean, yeah, that says let's, something. Let's talk basketball. Now, so it does, you know, it help you, you know, 
talk about other sports, even though we might have lost in football. Now, has it been like a curse or at least a bad omen since Mike Hart called MSU the little brother? You know what? We've been calling little brother. We called him little brother when I was there, but, you know. At least you guys were winning. I'm saying, you know what? If you're winning, you can back it up, right? But if you're not winning. Now, I know Mike Hart was on some good teams. He was in his defense. It was a good running back. Mm -hmm. Heck of a player. But... Like, yeah. now I would hope nobody from Michigan, yeah. right? One thing when you that, hope that nobody from Michigan now is calling MSU little brother? Yeah, I mean, they can't really say it now, but I think after the win, they can say it. You know, before that, you know, I think I think Harbaugh is going to gonna make it make us make a big deal this year on we're not the we're not the little brother. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, we, we started first and we're going to end, you know. We gonna yeah, end forget all, all that talk year. about yeah. us being called the little brother. We're the yeah, big brother. Yeah, y'all state. Y'all Michigan state. So, you know, we're University of Michigan. So I think that the guys, like I say, they got to get riled up this year. The fans and the former players can only do so much. Sure. The head coach can only do so much. The defensive coordinator can only do so much. They got to perform. Players have to get it done on the field. Period. It comes out of that. They the players have to make the plays and they do make the plays. Yep. If they're a good team – they're going to win a lot of games more than they lose. And mm-hmm. with that being said, I'll leave you with this. Now, prediction from you for this season. What is your outlook for U of M football? How many wins are you looking for? Uh, I mean, I'm I'm look, looking at like maybe, you know, 10 wins. 10 wins to get you to the Big Ten Championship. You know, we in Ohio State lose or Michigan State lose, and we're, we're, we're right there. You know, we got to beat Iowa. Uh, we got to be Illinois. You know, we, we got to win games. So my thing is we hope two guys, two teams lose, and we get the opportunity to, to fight for the Big Ten Championship. And a mighty tough test under the lights to start off the season. Man, that's going to be South great. Ben. How about that, game? Yeah, that's going to be great. I mean, it's tough, to, it's tough to win in Notre Dame. Like, we lost to Notre Dame my freshman year, redshirt freshman year, and which is the reason why we didn't go to the national championship game. Even if we lose to Syracuse, we still, we still got a chance, you know. But – Notre Dame's tough. Well, can Michigan beat Notre Dame, MSU, and Ohio State all this upcoming season? I think they can. I think we got the team to do it. I think this year is the year. If it's not going to be this year, next year, right? But this year is the year. Got to like, get it and done. they got to huh? perform. And Notre Dame now. You don't play them now. Michigan doesn't play them every single season. Right. How much would that stink for you looking back at it? If you knew back then you wouldn't be able to play Notre Dame every single season. I mean, that was a that right. was a leg that's a yeah, legacy thing, was tradition yeah. between the two squads being able to play each other every single season and yeah. the bragging rights were huge and now you can't even play yeah. the other team every single season. Yeah, it, it's tough and that's why I say this is gonna be a big game under the lights. So that's gonna be something that Michigan's gonna be known for. We're gonna win under the lights or we're gonna lose under the lights. And Julius, I'll let you go with that. Great stuff from you. It's been fun chatting with you all about U of M football, Julius Curry racing, and so much more. Great stuff from you, man. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, brother. Thanks, Vito. Great job. Thank you, Julius, for coming in. Great episode of Two Bad Hombres. And please follow us on Twitter, at Two Bad Hombres. Follow me. You can do that as well, at Vito Jerome on Twitter. Thank you much, and we'll talk to you again soon. Adios.